What a joy to sing together, to partake of the elements of the communion, to simply be together. What a joy that is. And today I'm particularly thinking of people all over the world who wish they could gather like we could. People in Afghanistan, people in other regimes and countries who don't have the freedoms that we have to gather to worship. May the love of Jesus fill their hearts. May it be so overwhelming. For the families who have lost loved ones in a horrible act of terror, for the families of service members who have lost their sons, may the love of Jesus fill them. For families in Afghanistan and Haiti who are searching for their loved ones, may the grace of Jesus fill their hearts. For our families embracing this horrible hurricane headed towards Louisiana and New Orleans, may God provide his protection, his covering over them. May the love of God be felt near, even in the moments of tragedy and hardship. Every year, over a million people come to America from all around the world. They follow the process, have waited for years to get to this country that we hold dearly to and that we really do love. In 2019, over 800,000 people applied to be citizens of this nation. There's something beautiful that draws people to America. We may call it the American dream. The American dream, it speaks of our ideals, our values for liberty, equality, for opportunity, our ideals for privileges and freedoms that we enjoy. And sometimes we take it for granted until we see regimes around the world who don't value what we value. James Adams, in the year 1931, he defined the American dream like this, life should be better richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement, regardless of social class or circumstances of birth. Life should be better, richer, and fuller for anyone who would want it to be. This is why families from all over the world come to our nation. In fact, my family was one of those. About 25 years ago, we moved to this part of the world. My extended family had moved here long before then, several decades before then. They had filed for our family to come, but my parents for many years refused to come because they were planting churches and ministry was just too fruitful in South India and they didn't want to give that up. But as they had four kids, which I'm the youngest of four, for our sake, for more opportunity, I guess, for a better chance at a better life, we decided to finally, in 1996, come to America. And I remember as kids, we had all these imaginations of the American life, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Then you realize you got to work hard to pray for that milk and honey, right? You have these figments of imagination of what life would be like. And I imagine all of us living in this room and all of us in this room and those joining us online, we all live in America. It is a nation we love. But let me ask you this question. Is life truly for you better fuller and richer is life better fuller and richer or is there a disconnection maybe a gap between this dream and its reality in 2018 the Gallup survey did a survey of 151,000 people from 141 nations and you know what they concluded this was literally the heading on the New York Post from the study Americans are the most stressed out people in the world. 
<laughs> You're like, yep, I agree. A lot of heads nodding. That's more nodding of heads than I've ever seen in my sermon. <laughs> Americans are the most stressed out people. It was reported this year that 77% of Americans experience stress that affects their physical health. 73% of Americans have stress that impacts their mental health. 48% of Americans are so stressed out, they can't even sleep peacefully at night. You may wonder, well, what's the cause of such stress for Americans? And in fact, there's this graph I came across that gave the five top reasons, and the top three have been the same over many decades. The top three reasons for stress in our nation is money, work, and the economy. Money, work, and the economy. So we have this dream, this pursuit of life, liberty, happiness, for a life that's better, richer, and fuller, and we work hard for it. Multiple jobs if it takes us, overtime if it takes us, and yet we are stressed out about money, work, the economy. We want this dream, we want this life, but we're still striving for it. So that tells me that something isn't working. That something is missing. We want this American dream to be a reality, but most of us maybe have yet to experience at least the fullness of what that could be. The Bible doesn't talk about the American dream, but it does talk about the abundant life. An abundant life. And I imagine that's what we all want, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. You want such a life. And that is essentially what the American dream wants to get us at, but in a very different way than the Bible prescribes. This abundant life, abundant, full of joy and meaning and purpose, full of security, value, relationships that are flourishing, a life with peace on the inside. Don't you long for that? Don't you want it? And God wants that for you. And God, through the scriptures, invites us into a journey of how we receive this abundant life. God who made you, who formed you, who fashioned you. The God who knows you better than you know yourself. He invites you to such a life. But his way of getting there is actually the inverse of what our culture says is how we get there. So today I want to look at two particular passages that invite us to this American dream that we really want, but still feel like something is missing. What the Bible calls to this abundant life. And what we realize is it's quite a different pathway of getting there. See, our American culture will tell us that to get to this abundant life, it begins with us. It begins with how much we earn, the things we have, the accolades we accomplish, the privileges and opportunities we achieve for ourselves. But the Bible says that actually abundant life doesn't begin with you doing something for yourself. It actually begins with a relationship with Jesus with God himself. This is the center of the life. This is our heart of the kind of life that you actually long for. Jesus said this in John 10, verse 10. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come so that they, so that you, so that I, so that we may have life and have it in abundance. Jesus has come so that we would have life and life in abundance. Before I said yes to following Jesus, I always imagined Jesus was a killjoy. That he was going to take away all my fun. That following Jesus, that it would mean I couldn't do this. I couldn't say these list of words. That it was about a rule list to follow. 
And yet Jesus says following me is actually experiencing real life. If you follow me, you have this life in abundance that you long for, that you desperately want for even yourself. This word that Jesus used for abundance means life beyond necessity. Life beyond necessity, this immeasurable life, life beyond your wildest imagination. And I believe as John has recorded this, John himself has experienced what we call extraordinary life with Jesus where everything is different. He had maybe imagined a life of behavior management, but in Jesus, he's found a life of forgiveness and newness. And we all, maybe even in following God, we have this set of expectations. But when you come to Jesus, you realize what he gives you, what he offers you is himself. It's a life beyond what our imagination could ever even hold. One of true identity, true security, true meaning and purpose. This word life here is zoe, this inner life, this life to the fullest, this life in the most real sense. It means that you're not just merely existing, but you are truly alive. You're not just going through the motions. We're not just on this endless hamster wheel trying to make it. No, we have real meaning, real purpose, real fulfillment. The life has been totally found out in Jesus alone. We want the American dream, but what's better than the American dream is this abundant life found in Jesus. Jesus would say to us in John 5, verse 24, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment. But already, just by believing in him, you've passed over from death to life, from darkness to light. You've passed over from this soul scarcity and poverty of being under the chains of the enemy to full freedom. Found only... In Jesus. This is the abundant life that begins with following Jesus. But there's another passage that I want to look at that talks also about this abundant life. And these two passages may seem sort of disconnected, not at all correlated, because the next passage is about generosity. It's about giving. It's about generosity. But they're actually not that far apart because the very nature of God is generosity. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave. He gave. He is a generous God. And not only did he give us his son, Jesus, through whom we have life, every single moment in our day, God is continually giving. Take a deep breath in. Don't look at your neighbor, but take a deep breath out. Do it again. You have just experienced the generosity of God. We were not owed that breath We're not owed the next one either. God is so generous. In just a little of moments we experience, in just our everyday breath, he keeps pouring into our hearts and life, meaning and joy and even breath itself. And as we follow Jesus, this giver of life, God begins to make us into a generous people. This generous God begins to live through us. We who have experienced this extraordinary life, now generously we share this life with the world who have yet to experience the kindness, the generosity of God. He lives generously through us. And in so doing, we experience even more an abundant life in God. So notice what Paul tells young Timothy, this mentee of Paul, 1 Timothy verse, chapter 6, verse 17. 
Paul tells, tells Timothy this, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age. Catch this, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Truly life. Now you might have already checked out in this passage because Paul begins this passage with saying, instruct those who are rich. You're thinking, whew, I'm not among the rich. I can go back to Instagram or my phone for the rest of the time because this message surely doesn't apply to me. There are people that are way richer than I am. But did you know that if you compare your life to the global world, you most likely are incredibly wealthy, filthy rich. If you have just food in the refrigerator today, if you've got clothes on your back, and I'm looking around the room, thankfully you have clothes on your back. <laughs> if you live under a roof, you're already wealthier than 75% of the world. If you have any savings at all, whether in a piggy bank at home or in a bank account, you're automatically at the top 8% of the world. If you make something north of $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. All you rich people. We've been blessed, haven't we? So what Paul says actually matters to us. See, those who are rich in Paul's day, they assumed that simply having more would give them the happiness they sought out for, that their net worth would equate a better self-worth. And they pursued and tried to earn more, and soon they came to the realization, actually, it doesn't work that way. Simply having more doesn't give me the fulfillment, the joy that we desperately long for. And in our own pursuit of the American dream, we come to that realization at some point, simply having more, keeping more, doesn't equate to a better, fuller, richer life. So Paul here writes instructions, a script on how we can experience the abundant, the true life that we all long for. And his instruction is so countercultural to our day. It's like flipping the script, working it the other way around. So here are three things that Paul tells us how we experience this joyful, abundant life. First of all, Paul says, hope in God, not in wealth. Hope in God, not in your wealth. Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. The blessings you are, you have, it's for yours to enjoy. Don't feel bad about it. God has provided you something to enjoy. But Paul says, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of wealth. Don't put your hope there. See, people with a lot of money and people with little money can both hope in money. One group hopes that money will keep them from problems. And the other group hopes that money will solve their problems. The rich and the poor alike can falsely put their hope in riches, in wealth. So Paul says here, put your anchor, put your confidence, put your hope in only God. Only he is certain. And we've realized this over the last couple of years. Just a novel virus from somewhere around the world can shake everything in our world. Nothing seems certain. 
Not wealth, not the economy, not work. Nothing is certain. But you know who is certain? God himself, the unchangeable God, the immovable God, the eternal one, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He is always certain. He's always trustworthy. So put your hope in him. Here are a few diagnostic questions to really find out where is your hope in? Is it in God or is it in money? Where does your greatest joy come from? Does your joy come from God or from money? Does your trust in God overcome your anxiety about money? Is your confidence in who God is or is it in what you have? Do you find yourself more frequently thinking about how to draw closer to God or how to make more money? What? controls the narrative of your mind is it thoughts about God, devotion to him, love towards him or is it possessions, wealth and money if wealth were to be taken from you would you still love God would you still follow him would you still be grateful if everything you owned was taken from you 1 Timothy 6 a few verses earlier Paul said to Timothy but godliness with contentment is great gain this is what you are to strive for, godliness, to be in Christ, to be righteous in him, to pursue God, to love God. That with contentment is great gain. And what does it take to be content? Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. My mama used to tell me that. I brought you into the world. I can take you out. Right? Paul says we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. This is all it takes. Basic needs. If we just have this. We will be content. You know what kills contentment? Comparison. I used to be content. And then I saw my friend's social media page about the vacation they had. I thought my vacation was good until I saw theirs. And we're on this hamster wheel of got to have more because they've got more. And our hope is displaced. Put your hope in God, not in wealth. Second of all, Paul says, be rich in serving people. Be rich in serving people. Notice how he words it. Verse 18, the beginning section of it. Instruct them to do what is good. To do what is good. To be rich in good works. What if our society measured richness or wealth in these terms rather than dollar signs? To be rich in good works. That your acts of love and kindness toward people. Acts of service toward others is a greater wealth. A greater rich than what money can ever provide. Now we know that we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. And the scriptures are clear. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. But notice what Paul says next. For we are his workmanship. And that word is the word poem, literally. You are uniquely fashioned, formed by God with incredible thoughtfulness, precision, you are beautifully created by God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you're saved by grace, but you're created in Christ for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are saved by grace, but saved for works. The cause is grace. The effect is serving people. Works that God has, before time began, prepared in advance for you, to do, 
to be rich in good works. You are uniquely fashioned and formed and there is a good work for you to do. Martin Luther would say like this, he said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Our faith leads us to action. It leads us to generosity. It leads us to good works. Are you rich in good works today? Are you rich in good works? Are you thinking about who can I serve? Who can I help? What has God laid in front of me to do today on a Sunday, on a Monday, on a Wednesday? God, what's the good work prepared in advance? So lead me to the work you've created me to do. In about two weeks, we begin two services. And for some of you in the room, the good work is to serve in our ministry right here at Bentry to serve a child in kids' ministry, to pour into them, to disciple them, to leave a first impression in their life that will last them for all their life, to create an environment where people are loved and welcomed, to be on our guest services team, to do something where you can serve people, to find an area of need right around you, maybe at your workplace, maybe in your community, to say, God, what is the good work you've created me to do? I want to be rich in good works toward other people. The hard truth is that you'll never experience this abundant life if the arrow of your affection, your passion, your desire is only pointed inward. But the moment you point the arrow by the power of the Spirit of God outwards, you begin to seek people to serve and seek the works that God's created you to, your soul will be so rich. It doesn't actually matter how much money you have. Your soul is rich just in the act of serving people. The third thing that Paul teaches us here about experiencing this abundant life is to share generously our financial resources. To share generously our financial resources. Look at verse 18 and 19. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. What is truly life? Most of us, it's easy for us to fall prey to this notion that to have a life that's better, fuller, richer means a life with more, to earn more, to keep more, to have more. In another survey, a person who makes $75,000 were asked, how much money would it take for you to be happy? Their response was $125,000 a year. So they found somebody that made $125,000 a year. How much money would it take for you to be happy? Their response was $175,000 a year. And this question was asked all the way to a person making $300,000, $400,000 a year. And it was always fifty dollars to $75,000 more than what they currently were making. Because somehow in our mind, we link true happiness to something far out there, to something more. If I could just have this, and we're always pursuing the there, if I can just get there. We link it to having more, achieving more, having accolades. But Paul says quite to the contrary there. That life isn't about keeping more, making more. Life isn't about running over people to get to the pinnacle of your success because people have tried that. On the altar of relationships, built their own empire. You know what they realized? It's lonely. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's simply not worth it. So Paul, by the power of the Spirit, gives us a better way. 
to a life that's full of abundance. He says abundant living is actually generous living. Abundant living is generous living. It's not about getting, it's about giving. It's not about keeping, it's about sharing. This is where true abundance, true meaning, true fulfillment comes. It's about pulling the arrow outward. Okay, what need can I meet? Who can I serve? How can I help? It's about generous living. Paul tells Timothy there's two things that you receive when you take the riches of this present age and you're willing to share, you're willing to be generous. He says, first of all, you are laying up treasures as a good foundation for the coming age. This is what we call bema, good works, accomplishing something beautiful in heaven for us. The day of rewards. We're not saved by our good works, but they're celebrated in heaven. You lay a, a foundation for the coming age. So when you compare this present age of 70, 80, 90 years to the eternal age that awaits us, isn't that better to store treasures there? And then Paul says, in the meantime, even on this earth, you are taking a hold of what is truly life. It does something in the forever, but also does something to you now. You've experienced true life here. I told you about my parents who moved from India 25 years ago and immigrants. We didn't have a whole lot of money. So we didn't have what we call discretionary income. My mom was a nurse, but just to take care of my siblings and I, four kids, and my dad was a pastor to help in ministry, to be uh, all that she could do to serve our family. She quit working, so we were a single-income family. We didn't have discretionary income, so vacations were a foreign idea. The idea of a vacation was showing up to a funeral a day earlier and hanging out, or staying back a day after a wedding. Okay, going out to eat was really a foreign concept. My mom would have this joke anytime I asked her, can we go out to eat? She said, okay, you can grab this plate from the kitchen and take it outside. You can go out to eat. She literally would say that to me. That's her idea. My first job when I was 14, I was a, a bagger at a grocery store. And my parents taught us two things about money. You don't spend it unless you absolutely need it to. And second of all, you save every bit you can. Don't spend, but save. Don't spend, but save. And guess what? It actually worked. It put four kids through college without any school debt. But the only problem was that I wasn't naturally a generous person because my entire motive, my motif, my way of operating was don't spend and then save. You don't know when you'll need it. It was a scarcity, even poverty mentality. I got to keep everything to myself because I don't know when I'll lose it or when I'll need it. And then I met my wife. <laughs> Love you, babe. She's sitting right there. She came into my life with a huge, generous heart. And I was so mad. <laughs> Why do you have to be so loving and kind and compassionate? <laughs> but God used her. I mean, she could be halfway through a commercial and she's already writing out a check. <laughs> I'm here counting every cent and dime. But through her, God opened my eyes, my heart, not to the obligation of giving, but to the joy of giving, the privilege of generosity. I can tell you that what Paul is saying is so right. Do you actually have more of an abundant life, real joy, real life, not by getting and keeping? Yes, you need to save, you need to be wise, but you have true abundant living through generosity through giving, through seeking out how you can make a difference in the world. 
Imagine when you were on the receiving side of generosity. Maybe somebody surprised you and paid for your meal. Maybe somebody helped your cause and donated to something you were striving for. Maybe someone helped you pay a bill. How much of joy in life you experienced being on the receiving end of generosity. What makes giving so fun is to imagine a person, a family, someone on the other side of your generosity. Someone is being helped. Someone is being served. And when you give to Bentry and through Bentry to our ministries all over the world, some town you'll never step into is blessed. Children are learning about who they are in Jesus. Adult groups are meeting to find rural community. Young adults and young singles and young couples are finding meaning. Marriages are restored and missionaries are supported. Lives are transformed. Disciples are made. Somebody is on the other side, on the other end of your, of mine, of our generosity. Last Christmas Eve, we asked Bentry here to give a special offering to a local ministry that, that addresses the need of homelessness in our community. And so, of course, Bentry, you being amazingly generous, you gave over $60,000 immediately to this gift to address families in our region who were going to be evicted and couldn't pay rent. And one of the individuals on the other side of our generosity was a single mom of four by the name of Nora. Because of COVID, Nora couldn't work. Her teenage daughter attempted suicide, and soon she caught the virus. The whole family was sick. Nobody could work, so they fell behind on rent. They were about to be evicted. And she went to so many ministries and opportunities around here trying to find help and no one because everyone was so depleted of their resources. The rate of homelessness went from went 200, 300% over what was usual. But our local partner, Christian Community Action, they were just given your generous gift of 60 grand. And Nora was able to stay in her home. She was able to make all her payments made. And she was only one of the 133 single moms that were on the other side of your generosity. Amen. Praise God for that. One of our local partners in Uganda is a nursing school. This certain school is located about 200 miles outside of Kampala, this super rural community where appropriate healthcare is not there. It's so low, low quality. But this nursing school is the only hope that they can have to create awareness and train people in caring for one another. It's one of our partners, and they right now have, until July, they had 138 nursing students at this hospital, this school. They were about to receive 100 more, but they were totally low on supplies, on resources. So they asked us if we could help, and immediately, because of your generosity, we could cut out a check of $20,000 and give to this nursing school. That immediately blessed 100 nursing students in Bugongji, Uganda. You may never go there, but you just blessed a ton of families. You just empowered people to learn and bless their community. Someone is on the other side of your generosity. Let me tell you, here at Bentry, we are just getting started. The last three weeks, I've painted a vision that God has laid on our heart to transform our community, to reflect our community, to, to pursue people in our community. The heart of our missions is to bring the light of Jesus into the darkest places of the world, 
So we want to be right in the middle of reaching the unreached, of advocating for children, of empowering women, of strengthening churches, of responding to crisis, just as we have done last two weeks to Haiti and Afghanistan. We have a big vision. But here's the reality. Our generosity, that includes mine and yours, our generosity controls the pace of that vision. To see that vision come to fruition means God, I want to give up my time, my energy, my resources. I want to be a part of this together. We're not a bystander. No, we are a participant in this vision together. So today, I'm unashamedly inviting you to this journey of generosity, to be a part of God using you to bless the world through our church. It's not about what you give. It's about the heart posture. It's about giving as an act of worship, treasuring Jesus beyond what the stuff we have in this world is. Loving God is an act of worship. Every single act of generosity is an act of trust. It's an act of worship. It's an act of putting God first, his kingdom first. And as we do, our heart turns toward his causes in the world. A few years ago, a few kids participated in this generosity experiment. This group of kids came from a low-income community in Atlanta. And during Christmas time, they were asked a very difficult question. Here's a video of this question and this their response. Take a look. What are you hoping to get? A computer. Big, giant Barbie house. A trophy case. An Xbox 360. Minecraft Legos. What do you think your mom or dad want for Christmas? My mom would probably want a ring. She's never really had a ring. Jewelry. She loves jewelry. A new TV. Like watches. So. We actually did buy an Xbox 360. What in the world? I wanted this! Okay, you you really got this for me? A new laptop. Wow! And it's a necklace! So we also bought a necklace because you said you also wanted to get a necklace for your mom or your auntie. The catch is that you can either get a gift for yourself huh? or you can pick a gift for your mom and dad. I need you to pick one. Now, now before you answer, oh, I bet that's hard. Is that a really hard question? Mm-hmm. What gift do you pick? I choose this. I gotta go with the ring. What gift do you pick? That one. That one. I'll choose this for my mom. I'll choose this one. It's a really tough question. I'll give him this. You already know? Tell me why. Because Legos don't matter. Lego, your family matters. Not Legos, not toys, your family. So it's either family or Legos and I choose family. I get gifts every year from my family and my mom don't get anything. If I get a laptop, my mama was something. She helps me when I'm sick. She helps me with my homework. She gave me a house to live in. They look out for me and do stuff for me, so I need to give back to them. Now I, I have the opportunity to give them something. Because you actually picked the gift for your family, you're actually gonna go home with both. Tell me how you're feeling. I'm feeling really happy and Why? thankful. Just happy. Thankful. For your family? For what? My family, everything. You did make his decision, actually. 
and oh he goodness. picked the Pandora charm. So what are you putting in the thing? Oh, it's for me? Oh, it's so cute. Thanks, guys. I was going to. Isn't that awesome? Way to go, kids. I've thought about doing that experiment with my five-year-old girl, but I'm not sure how she'll respond. <laughs> And I don't want to be disappointed quite yet. She needs more time at Bentry to, to be more generous. <laughs> I love watching the reaction of their parents, the joy when their kids chose generosity rather than selfishness. They could have justified it. I needed this. But they chose to think about their parent. How much joy do you think is in the heart of God when we, his children, choose generosity? We choose to bless somebody else when we could have used it for ourselves. I believe God is so amazed at that. And sort of like this, God knows what you need. He'll always give you what you need. But the opportunity to make a difference for somebody else, you could have both. Here's what Paul said in 1st, 2nd Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians 9, 68. The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. So each person should do as he has or she has decided in their heart. Not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And notice how Paul, in the context of generosity, describes abundant life. And God, who is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. That's the heart of God, the nature of our good Father. He's able to make grace overflow, cause you to excel in every good work you have, in every way you have everything you need because He can be trusted. He's a good, loving father. He is so good for us and to us. What leaves your hand never leaves your life. God takes it. He blesses the world through it. So I'm inviting you wherever you are in your generosity journey. Maybe take the next step. Maybe it's, I'm going to become a first-time giver. I'm going to trust God with my resources. Maybe it's being a regular giver. Maybe it's doing what so many in our church do and giving God a tithe or a percentage. Maybe it's beyond that. Maybe it's something else. Imagine who is on the other side of your generosity. Think about that person. Think about families in our region and the ministries that we get to do together, our vision. Say, God, I'm trusting you with my next step of generosity. Would you bow your heads with me today? How generous has God been to you? How good has he been to you? Maybe you're here today and you have yet to experience the abundant life that is found in Jesus. He's saying, follow me. Let me give you a taste of true life. Life where you were forgiven. You don't have to strive. You already have approval from God just based on trusting Jesus. So today, will you open your heart to him? So Father, we bow here before you. We are recipients of your ongoing, everyday generosity. Thank you for the simple gifts of life, being able to gather 
being able to go out to eat if we choose to, being able to be protected and safe. Thank you for every gift of generosity. Most of all, thank you for the gift of salvation. For redeeming us and saving us and giving us new life, abundant life in Jesus. And out of the overflow of your generosity, God, may you make us a generous people. Jesus, live generously through us. May we be a conduit where blessing flows through us to somebody else. Thank you for what you're doing here at Bentry for just the good ground that this is. The impact we get to make every single week in rooms right now we don't even get to see. In people's lives on the other side of a camera that we don't get to meet. In towns and villages around the world that we get to bring hope to. Continue to stir that deep in our hearts. Even if we give automated God online, may we never disconnect our heart from our giving. May we use moments like Sundays when we gather and we talk about giving or emphasize giving to be an altar of worship to you or put on the calendar a date where our draft goes out and to pause to say thank you, to make it an act of worship and love and devotion to God. Thank you for what you're going to do in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.